Hello, this is Zach Berger, and this is the uh, next installment. It's going to be the best installment of my podcast called Shulam's Bias, Medicine and Other Curiosities, where I basically interview people that do things that interest me. And today I have the luck of talking to someone that does a lot of interesting things. And this is Eleanor Nowen. You could find out all about her on eleanornowen.com, but she's a writer um, and has written a lot of stuff about various and sundry themes, including cars and, and baseball and Jews and married life and um, all sorts of other things. Um, so, oh, and, 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 um, and, and the road. And um, so thanks, Eleanor, for taking the time to chat. Oh, no, I'm totally excited to talk with you, Zach. Thanks for asking me. So, there is a, you, you quoted somebody, and I forget who now, on your website, saying that um, a, a, whatever, whatever the poet does is poetry, something like that. Like, right. Um, and and I, one of the things that I find very interesting about you is the diversity of topics that you write about. And how do you, is there some corner of your mind where they're all in some glorious synthesis? Or are you sort of like a butterfly flitting from flower to flower and what you find interesting, you write about that? Oh, that's a good question. Probably the latter. I have never discovered any corner of my mind where there's any synthesis whatsoever. I think that it's a giant, like, rummage sale of shelves full of, oh, Hey, that's interesting. Oh, did somebody say ice cream? You know, so yeah, my my attention gets, I've been doing a blog for the last, well, three years now. And it's interesting, if I look back, I can see that half the things I wrote about a year or two ago, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. I had an interest in butterflies, you know, synthesis. So yeah, I would say definitely where my attention gets caught influences me. That said, there's, as you began, there's a lot of things that I consistently do have an interest in, cars and driving and the road, baseball. Um, what, is, what is it about, what is it about cars that, and, and I'm going to have you explain it to a non-car person because, you know, I don't drive because of vision. And so cars have always been, for me, like just outside the play class window. And then I've spent time in New York where I think for me, at least living in Manhattan, cars were not a big part of things. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in South Dakota, which is a very lightly populated state with very good roads. So it was normal for my family and everyone I know to drive long distances. We would go up to the Twin Cities, which is about four and a half hours. That was kind of the extent of how far you would go to get bagels, for instance. And I, I don't, I think that, you know, if you didn't have a, if you're a guy and you didn't have a driver's license, you couldn't get a girlfriend in high school. So cars were just kind of the air that I breathed. Then I moved to New York and I moved here with a car because I had been living up in Maine. And then my car got towed the first day I was here and that was bad. <laughs> I didn't have a car anymore. And I think that I started to write my first long poem, which was called Cars, because I was kind of like, oh, I'm a pedestrian now, I'm a, and I felt infantilized by not having a car. A car was the way that I was alone in
remember being shocked, and I said to him, so you've never been alone in a car? And he said, well, yeah, they double parked and the driver ran in. But I was like, <laughs> oh, there's just such a pleasure of starting off on a road trip and not exactly knowing what music you were going to hear on the radio, um, where you would sleep that night. So it made me feel, um, I guess it sort of tripped up my attention to things, you know, because I didn't know what was going to happen. There was no route that I was on. How, how often do you drive now? Oh, Zach, I never drive now. I have a bicycle now, and I go all over the city on my bike, and I do like to pretend that it's my tiny little personal-sized car. But, yeah, I've, I've really become not a driver. A couple years ago, I rented a car. I forget where I was, and it was the first time in my life that I did not floor a car. I never would get in a car without seeing how fast it could go, and all of a sudden... I was like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> and, and that was the moment where I realized that I'm actually not, I mean, I still can drive, of course, but I, I'm not the driver that I was, the person who identified herself as a driver. Right. That was the thing I was good at. And, you know, I dropped out of school, and I was pretty much of a ne'er-do-well, and the one thing I was really good at was driving. Right. I mean, which had a very low bar. I mean, all you had to do is be willing to you know, go across the country in a car. It wasn't, you know, I was good at it because I was willing to do it. Have you have you written a poem about a favorite car or a favorite kind of car? Well, the, the, the long poem Cars is about all the cars I owned and then drove up to that point in my life because that was published in like 19... Oh, I think 1980 maybe. And then um, there's a section of my long poem my book-length poem called Pink Highways, which is also about road trips. And then I was an auto, I was an automotive writer. I was an auto columnist for a magazine for a couple of years, and then I wrote about cars for Newsweek and, you know, other, um, more technically writing it. But the part that, and so I, yeah, I wrote about, I'm interested in, or was in, interested in cars and working on cars, but I've always been more interested in, the feeling of what driving represented and and it, it to me it represented many things you know like all the things I've just been saying and way more do, do you have any poem about that that you could read oh let's see well I have like my thousand page poem which <laughs> is probably too long to read um let's see you know it's interesting because all my car poems seem to be pretty long. Oh, yeah. So when we get to the part where I read a poem, maybe we'll, I'll read a poem about baseball or... Okay. I actually have a poem that I was thinking I would read because if you were to ask me a question about how does um, baseball and being Jewish relate to each other, I have a poem for that. <laughs> well, tell, tell me. How do they relate? Well, you know, as I said, I grew up in South Dakota. My father was a refugee from Nazi Germany. And I was a big baseball fan, and not, of course, not at the time, but later I thought, oh, how does one become, you know, Americanized except through cars and baseball, baseball and cars. And so I think, I do think part of my love for both of those came out of this feeling of I wasn't, you know, I was the only person I knew whose parents 
accent. Um, we were the only non-blondes in, you know, everybody was Norwegian and Swedish. You know, so I, um, so somehow my way of being Jewish was to be as American as possible. Right. If that even makes sense. And, and because we were in the Pluto of Yiddishkeit out there in South Dakota, I mean, I can't begin to tell you how not really Jewish, except that we were. Right. How, I mean, which, did you, did you root for a particular team out there? Oh, I was a Yankees fan from the get-go. I mean, and this is a little embarrassing, but they were the team that won. And so, and I thought, well, that's the point. And so I chose the Yankees as my team. Um, and they were the ones you heard about the most. Then the Twins came in, and they were like my backup team. And I do root for the Twins now, as well as the Yankees. But And it also makes me think, wow, I had never been east of the Mississippi River growing up. And... Yeah, I was a Yankees fan, and here I am now living in New York most of my adult life. You know, I sort of feel like somehow it was all predicted without me having any clue. It was faded. I think that it was. You know, I, remember, I found a poem that I wrote when I was maybe in seventh grade, and it was, um, it was all, I mean, again, I had never been to New York City, but it was a poem about New York City, and it was all, you know, bright lights, big city type, on and on. And then the last line was, nature, green emptiness. <laughs> so I think, oh, I was already a city girl. <laughs> I'd never, not only had never been east of Mississippi, but I'd actually never been in a city, unless you count Sioux Falls, which is the larger city in South Dakota, but it's not a city by any other definition. Right. So, so both, both cars and, and, and baseball are, are typical Americana. As, at least in your childhood mind, and that's what, what, what implanted them into your soul, maybe. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's many reasons. If you think about baseball, um, poets, for the most part, if they have an interest in any sport, the sport is baseball, which has a lot of time in, during the game to, like, think about the game. And it's also, as the title of a book by Donna Hall, fathers playing catch with sons, you know, and of course it's not just fathers and sons, but there's always been a lineage aspect to baseball. Baseball fans all know who was traded for whom in 1912, you know, that kind of thing. Like people really do love the history and the connections and, you know, I just got in a big discussion with this guy who sells belts in front of my house. like. Who were, what were the teams in the original National and American Leagues? And then we had to go look it up, cause, and it was all convoluted. You know, so it's like, right. I, I forget what the point I was making. But, the, you know, so I feel like poets like baseball, and it's beautiful. So it, 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 it appeals. I mean, I don't think I knew I was going to be a poet, but I did like baseball, and that maybe was a clue. What was, what was the first poem you ever wrote or remember writing?
in an ad for some, now I can't remember what the ad was for. Gosh, I'd like to put my hands on that. But I do remember that was my first published poem outside of you know high school. That was a newspaper in Maine. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. That's cool. Like, yeah. You need. I mean, they they print as as an ad, like just to, like as a filler on the side, or like. No, you, not a, not a, It was in. A, it was an ad for something. That's interesting. Oh, that's interesting. I can't remember. I mean, this is. I can't remember whose idea. I can't remember anything. I can't remember whose idea it was or what it was an ad for. Possibly it was an ad for the leather store where I worked, Tree Stump Leather, because that's the kind of thing we were like high all the time, and they, everybody would have thought that was hilarious. Symbolizing the always complicated relationship between poetry and commerce. <laughs> yes, poetry is well known as a as a boon to <laughs> right. selling. Of course, everybody looks at a poem and goes, "Yeah, I gotta have me some of that," <laughs> and they buy, buy, buy. I need some leather, right? Right. And unfortunately, that was the beginning, the first and last time that commerce ever entered into poetry for me. Sadly. Although I am going to be doing a reading in October where I'm going to get paid a hundred dollars. Where are you reading? Um, well, it's in Hoboken. Some guy that I know who is the poet in residence at the Hoboken History Museum asked me to do it. It's a baseball-themed night, so. Oh, read read that poem about baseball. What's that? Read that poem about baseball. Oh right. Okay. So uh, this is called "How Hans Became an American." And I probably should just point out that this is my most anthologized poem by a long shot. I don't know why. Maybe I don't need to point that out. But I have. <laughs> How Hans Became an American. I've been sitting at my desk a lot, staring at my father. It's a picture taken in summer, a few months before he died. He's looking at me with a wry and knowing, did he know, expression. He looks like a man who needs a private joke to get a proper snapshot. He's looking straight at me, even as I sit in a cold May, a little too tired, the Yanks getting beat 4-1 in the fifth by Oakland out on the coast, a lackluster, they'll never catch up game. Rasmussen not getting shellacked, just doesn't have anything, and neither do the hitters. Gone native in his Arizona retirement, Dad is wearing a bolo tie and looks shrunken, frail. I liked to kiss him on the top of his bony head in the desert mornings. He took all of us to a game only once, my first. I was 10. Charlie was 8, Lindsay was 12, and the baby was left home. We drove all the way from South Dakota up to Minneapolis to see the Twins play the Yankees, my team. Daddy was a refugee from Nazi Germany, and Mom was English. They were grown-ups who'd never seen a game either. They went because he was the father of Americans, and I was a little baseball fanatic. Mom sat quietly for about 20 minutes, fanning herself with a straw sun hat and beaming, then asked, when does the game begin? Look down there, we said. It was already the second inning, but I still don't think she spotted it. I think she was waiting for the play-by-play, the familiar radio sound so different in the ballpark. Daddy wore plaid shorts over his white skinny legs and puffed a cigar, he began to like baseball when he found someone who knew less about it than he did. He explained it all to Mom, mostly according to his own logic. He had an accountant's sense of symmetry, and the diamonds pleased him. The profusion of numbers and their richness impressed him. The implication of infinity. 
damn nice summer day. I think now of those bleachers, old Metropolitan Stadium full of stolid Scandinavians who never corrected him. That would have spoiled their fun. Mom would ask, where's that chap running off to now? And Dad would explain, he goes home because he has nowhere else to go. My brother and I spent most of the game under the stands scrapping with baby Twinkies, Twins fans who didn't take to our rooting for the enemy. Charlie thinks he remembers a game-winning Bobby Richardson Grand Slam. I only recall the Yanks winning in the 10th and the incredibly intense luxury of that Laniap inning. Daddy stuck with baseball, too. Like the voting that made him proudest as a naturalized citizen, he quietly exulted in being able to talk to his kids about what they liked to talk about, which was sports. What pleasure it gave him to be able to call those Sunday calls, this is later after we'd all left home, and say, so, Mattingly's still leading the league, or I see where the Yankees aren't doing too well. But tonight, there's an amazing comeback, another 10th inning heroic to call home about. I see where the Yankees are going great guns. Though it's a few second basemen later, and the serene and splendid Willie Randolph who pulls it out for the team. That's a lovely poem. Thanks. I, did you say lanyap inning? I did say lanyap inning. What does that mean? It means a little extra. It's actually a New Orleans word. It's like if you get, it's like a baker's dozen. You know, they, you buy enough and they throw in one more. Yeah, it's one of those words oh, where I think I think I, I thought I knew what it meant, and if it had been in like a baking context or like like a baker's dozen context, I would have sort of like like sort of nodded in, internally and moved on. But in a poem, I'm like, oh, I don't think I actually know what that word means. And oh yeah, yeah, it's a nice word. I, it just that had that same feeling of like a bonus. Like yeah. You you signed up for nine innings and. Oh my God! They're giving us a free inning. <laughs> so, and I, I, I like um, you know Micah is eight, my son, and and I'm not a sports person, and and he is. So it's uh, I I like talking to him about sports because it tr- makes me broaden the things that I can talk about, you know. And I have to try and find ways to to get into his little world about like things he's interested in. He doesn't follow teams, but he likes you know playing sports, and so. Oh to, yeah, to, well, that's probably better. Yeah, well, I, I should say that my dad. I know that he looked at this. I know that in reality, he only looked at the sports page on Sunday morning so that he, and found something he could say. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's <laughs> great. He was giving it a shot, and that was the nice part. Yeah, my, my my dad's a lawyer in Louisville, Kentucky, and I remember he used to read the sports. Or probably still does reads the sports sections to say things to clients. You know, because, yeah, exactly. And I never was a sports fan. Or, and I'm not really one, but I follow the Ravens and the Orioles because I live in Baltimore. And what do people talk about? Um, because they'll still talk about baseball in, in Baltimore. Well, the best because the Orioles are, are going great guns this year. I love that, going great guns. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> apparently like the, the Yankees, who are not going great guns at all, although they did beat the Orioles last night. Oh, did they? See, see that? <laughs> I should not admit that I don't know that. Um, I mean, the, yeah, the Orioles start off, start off winning the first however many games. I forget what their streak was, but they had a great beginning of the year. And yeah, they're still in first place. That's great. I think I knew that, passively. And, and it really, you know... Oh, and then the other side of baseball, just to, um, is, you know, it's like when I was 20 years old and all the ball players were my age, there was a lot of 
you know, fantasy, love life. Right. Like, they were all tall and handsome and athletic and, you know, in good shape. And, you know, we all were, like, had our love objects. I thought I thought the myth about baseball, maybe it's just a myth, is that it's the sport where you don't need to be in great shape to play it to play a good game. That used to be more true than it is now. Now there's a lot more money specifically at stake and people train all year round and The pros are more pro. Pros are more pro. I mean, there are still guys with the kind of bodies where if you met them and, and they told you that they pitched for the New York Mets, you would be like, <laughs> yeah, so does my grandma. <laughs> right, right. But it's true. I mean, but, but yeah, many more ballplayers are built like athletes. Right. And, in fact, the interesting thing is that, this isn't really to do with poetry, but they're all really great athletes. Like, the worst ball player in the major leagues is the best athlete you've ever met if you met them in person you know it's like it's not a bell curve where you know the, the people at the bottom are flunking it's a bell curve where everybody's in the bell and then there's like just people that are a little flatter i see you know right like i i had a friend who played for the yankees played, mostly played for the rangers played for the yankees for a year and he was just watching him walk you your eyes would be riveted just watching him walk down the street you'd be like who is this guy like he was an athlete. I mean, his, something there was some way that his something he could do that we can't do. I, I, I one of the things I like about your blog is like you have these little episodes where you you notice individual people, like yeah. and what they look like or this. It's like it's like humans of New York, but without this the the saccharin smarm. Oh, well, I'm kind of doing a series in my blog right now where. I, where, where, yeah, where that's exactly what's been going on. I just was kind of struck by, like, I had a hard stretch. My husband was had surgery, and I was kind of out of it for a couple months. And then all of a sudden, I felt like myself, and I was back reacting to what was going on around me. And it just seemed so fun. Like, I would walk down the street and get in a conversation that was hilarious or moving. Like, I'd get choked up, you know, and I, I thought, oh, yeah. That's one thing about living in a city is that you constantly meet people. You, that you run into people you do know, but you constantly meet people that you don't know that are wildly interesting. Yeah, that's what I like about my work, too. It's like, I mean, obviously people are sick, but, but a lot of times I just ask them, like, what's your life like? And I get these, like, stories. Like, like uh, you know, I, I, and I was in a clinic last night, and I was talking to a woman, and... I'm going to change where she's from, but she, she came here from Detroit, you know, in like the year 2000 with her mother. And then her mother decided to move back just because like her mother really missed Detroit. And, and now this person is really like Baltimore. And like she just was rhapsodic about how much she liked Baltimore and how her mother really liked Detroit. And it's like sort of, sort of the two, two different views of the world. There's the Detroit view and the Baltimore view. And she really, she really went on about how the cities were different. And it was really interesting. something you know often it's their own life and and people are many people are amazingly insightful about things that that we you know like breakfast oh my god i just get up and eat breakfast but here's this person who has a theory about breakfast (laughs) you know not just a health theory but like some total world view that's based you know or based on the difference between baltimore and detroit you know 
Right. Well, that's that's what I, what's I, I think what good poetry does. It's like the Blake, you know, whatever inter, eternity in an hour thing, right? Like you're trying. Yeah, it's it, in a grain of sand. Right. Yeah. Wait, is it eternity in the hours? It's something. Eternity in a grain of sand. The world in a grain of sand, and eternity in an hour. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Like I feel like that that opportunity is always there, but like it's so easy to miss, right? Right. It's so easy to miss, but it's also kind of easy not to miss if you just let yourself not miss it. That's Does that nice. Make sense? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just like if, if I walk out and I'm just like, oh, I'm asleep and I'm rushing to do something, then yeah, I miss it. But if I just saunter down the street, I'm like, wow, I've lived on this block for almost 40 years and I never noticed that's nice or it's like yeah. it's like I mean to, to me I, when I dive in well it's like that like sometimes you know if I'm plugged into the right frequency I get some sort of inchoate inkling which I never had before seriously um, you're the fastest diviner I've ever seen in my entire <laughs> life I don't know how you would have time for anything besides get through those words at top speed oh that's the, what I feel worst about when I dive in um, um, yeah I'm not criticizing no, 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 no. But Actually, we're always, you're a legend. <laughs> Thank you. But I, so I saw on your website, and you knew I was going to ask this because I told you, that you're writing a poem about snow. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, I kind of, it's funny because I wrote that on my website a long, long time ago, and then I came upon it, and I was like, oh, I'm writing a poem about snow. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. So then I started writing a poem about snow, and wrote quite a bit. Um, it all seemed to be rather similar, but it did send me off into reading endless books about the Arctic, which, especially this time of year, is a really fun thing to do, because you're like, oh, look at these people who are really, really cold, whereas I am really, really hot. Um, so I consider myself to be writing a poem about snow. It hasn't become a poem about anything quite yet, but every once in a while I do head back to it, and now I feel like I'd better head back to that. However, the main thing I'm doing right now is going through all my files, all the magazines, everything I can find that I ever wrote to see whether it's any good or not. Wow. Is that is that for a, a task, or is it... Well, it's partly... It's for two reasons. One is somebody asked to do a um, new and selected. So I thought, okay, sure. Uh, that's, so that's the main reason, I suppose. One is, which actually started before that, was my office just feels like it's piled high with paper, and I don't want it all to be thrown out if I drop dead. Not, not to be morbid, but yeah. like I just want to see what's there. I was only in your office. I've only been in your office once, but I really like it. I don't know. It's like. Oh, it's, now I have beautiful Elsa shelving in that whole middle room. So all my books are, are like present. Maybe, maybe we're all writing a poem about snow. Maybe we're all writing a poem. I mean, I sort of. It's interesting. I sort of feel about snow the way I do about baseball and cars. Like it's important and it's part of the air that I breathe in that way of. It's like one of my main topics, except that I've never managed to actually in fact, <laughs> write about it, even though I do consider it to be one of my main interests, you know, having, again, having grown up in the, you know, the northwest of the Midwest. Who was that guy that, uh, I'm forgetting his name, of course, he was a famously eccentric 
and apparently reading about him lately, nasty to women poet who was always writing a book, which was in a bunch of notebooks. What's his name? Gould. Yeah, not to compare you to him in personality at all, but like he was always writing a big, uh, huge work that was never ever. Right, which he never actually wrote, as it turned out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they finally saw the notebooks, and he just basically wrote the same thing over and over. Right, which was not what you're doing. So, so, no, I yeah. hope not. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's inter- it's really interesting because I almost always write the poem that I have said I'm going to write. Um, and so this is, might be the first time that a poem has been sitting around waiting for me, and I haven't quite figured out how to introduce myself to it. You know, I mean, many times a poem starts, like I'll tell you how So Late Into the Night started. So Late Into the Night, as you probably recall, is a book-length poem in a particular form called Otava Rima, which is an eight-line rhyming stanza. It's most, it was in, you know, it's an Italian which you can tell from the name, Otava Rima, but it was most famously used by Byron in Don Juan, and Beppo, but Don Juan. But other people have used it, Yeats, I mean, Auden used it in that poem about Yeats, and uh, Kenneth Koch, you know, contemporarily used it. And I only started, I love Byron, I love Don Juan, and Johnny and I had, my husband and I had read the it out loud. We like to read poems out loud, you know, passing the book back and forth. And I had read it to myself several times. And I, and then I found that John Clare had, the, the mad John Clare thought he was Byron and was writing like a continuation of Don Juan. And it was quite bad. It was in a cover room, but it was quite bad. And it suddenly I thought, oh, maybe I'll write a, a Stanza, one stanza of Otava Rima, and I wrote one stanza of Otava Rima one morning, and I was like, oh my God, this is what I do now. <laughs> I, this is what I'm doing now for the next 10 years. I just wrote stanzas, and for probably one year, I just wrote stanzas and in my notebook, and I didn't even type them up. I didn't even think about it. And then I suddenly read them, and I was like, oh look, there's a lot of stanzas here about baseball. There's a lot of stanzas here about road trips. There's a lot of stanzas here about growing up Jewish in South Dakota, and so I organized it, and then I consciously wrote the transitions, and, you know, that That's, kind of that's why I like the, that poem so much, is like, it's like this omnium gatherum of, like... It was such an interesting... I mean, I loved working on that poem. I was... I could have... Conti- you know, if I could have kept going... If I, you know, if I could have just written that for the rest of my life, I would have been perfectly happy. The minute I wrote two stanzas, I felt like I, you know, I don't usually like to show people work until I'm very sure that it's done or needs, or almost done. I was showing people that the minute I started writing it, I, I didn't have any, um, like, what's the word? I didn't, I never felt like it wasn't, everything about it was fine. And and then I wrote it, and I did a I did several big rewrites where I refined my rules. Even you know, I, I kept making rules for the poem, and then I'd make them tougher, and I'd have to rewrite the whole poem. And like that. And then a lot of people it got turned down by my pre, the the most my most previous publisher. It got turned down by a publisher who had said to me, "I would love to do a book of yours." You know, and then I wrote to him and I said, well, I have a book. And he said, 
oh, I can't even look at it. You know, I'm, I'm six years from looking at anything new. That's actually who's going to publish the next book. And, um, and so then I rewrote it again, and I, I, my motto for the last revision was um, this wonderful line by a Turkish poet named Murat Nemet Nejet. Nejet. <laughs> Murat Nemet Nejet. Um, and he said, if no one's buying the bread you're baking, you can make it as salty as you want. And I just made that poem as salty as I felt like. <laughs> That's and it, it turned out when it did get published, um, people liked it a lot. And But I, in the end, really was just pleasing myself. I had so much fun writing that poem. And I, and it, I think that ended up being what people felt in it. Yeah. And I, you know, what I'm going to do tonight is... Um, I'm going to read, read, read that poem again, or some of it. Um, and, <laughs> but uh, I could talk to you for hours, but I think uh, uh, I have to unfortunately go. And, uh, but I want to thank you, Eleanor, for, Eleanor and Alan, for taking the time to talk about all these wonderful things that you do. And uh, I look forward to reading the poem about snow. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll write it for you. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thanks, Zach. This was really fun to do. I'm enjoying listening to all your other podcasts. I like the Yiddish Brexit one. Thanks. Well, I hope to have another Yiddish one soon. So uh, thanks for talking. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye.